We are committed to training people in their craft and their ministry. The, the harbor is wonderfully positioned so that we can train, develop, and release uh, the next generation of leaders. Amen? And Jude has a call of God in his life, doesn't he? And we've, we've been walking together for a year. He's been walking together with us uh, for a while, uh, for about a year. And um, we're going to release him. He's got a word. You guys ready to receive it? Yes. Amen. All right, let's extend your hand towards Jude and um, make it a comfortable place, comfortable place for him to be trained and developed. Lord, we just we uh, acknowledge the uh, call of God on this man's life. God, he is a leader of leaders. He loves your word. And he just reminds me of Isaiah 66 too, Lord, that you bless those who are humble and contrite and tremble at your word. And Judas trembled at your word. When no one's looking, not just when he's preparing to preach, but when no one's looking, Jude has always trembled at your word. And we receive him as this humble man of God that he is. We need the word that he has. Release him in all of his giftings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Neil. This water bottle... This water bottle has no direct correlation on how long this sermon will be. So, you know, just needed some water. Um, open with me to 1 Corinthians 15, if you will. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I'm so glad to be a part of the harbor. I, I can't believe it's almost been actually a year since I uh, started coming and time has flown. And... Uh, but yeah, I'm happy to be with you this morning and to be bringing uh, God's word, which I really do feel and, uh, and know is, is God's word to us uh, this morning. Um, I do love God's word, and um, uh, maybe, maybe God's word should be closer to, to there than the, the softball trophy but, for, for us. But um, uh, I'm going to start out with uh, uh, something I wrote in my journal, actually. Uh, about a month and a half ago, after my family went on a vacation to uh, Lake George, New York. And, um, yeah, this is, this is, I feel like I'm putting myself out there. Um, but that's a good thing. And um, it was just really what I was feeling after that. And I think it, uh, it really um, uh, pertains to, to what God has for us today. So, just bear with me. I'm not sharing it because it's great writing skills or anything like that. Um, anyway, but uh, it's called Vacations Don't Satisfy Me. Vacations don't satisfy me, but God does. Vacations don't truly rejuvenate me, but Jesus does. Great experiences and travels don't fill, fill me, but God's spirit does. Have you ever felt the Sunday night blues? I'm referring to that feeling on Sunday night where you feel a little depressed that the weekend's over. It was probably a great weekend. Maybe it was really enjoyable, but that almost makes the feeling worse. Monday is coming. Like it or not, another week is here and stands ready for us. What has happened? Where has the time gone? I'm very conscious of this feeling right now. See, I just got back from Lake George with my family. My mom, dad, and brother came up from North Carolina my cousin came with his wife and two beautiful adopted children. Both my sisters um, took time away from school and work respectively. I brought a good friend and uh, two other family friends made the trek with us. It was nothing short of a party. We got to stay in a gigantic house with a hot tub and sauna. We cooked out, ate watermelon, 
saw fireworks at Ticonderoga, kayaked, fished, swam, played ping pong and badminton, and laughed a lot. We drank coffee and ate ice cream. We hit up bookstores, saw a beautiful river gorge, and hiked a mountain. Now, how, af- how after all that, am I unfulfilled? Yes, it's true that things could have been better. The pool in the backyard that was supposed to be open was only half full. And we didn't eat corn on the cob because our only option was Walmart, and it looked awful. But was that the real reason? The house could have been in better shape, and we could have had better snorkeling equipment. But I don't think those were the reasons either. See, I'd been looking forward to this trip for a while. I told numerous people about it, and expectations were high. Admittedly, maybe expectations were a little too high on my part. But this was an adventure. It was going, I was going to a part of the country I'd never been before, seeing parts of God's creation I'd never seen. And yet, here I am, overwhelmed by sadness that it's over. But I knew it was going to end. It had to. I, back, I got back close to dusk and found my house in Hamilton just as I had left it. Life just the same. You see, all the great experiences in the world can't compare with dwelling in God's presence, of experiencing the risen Christ. You see, I long for a day when Christ returns. I yearn for when I'm fully satisfied forever in God himself. You see, vacations don't satisfy me, but God does. Let's pray again. Father, we declare that you are our hope. Lord, I pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts this morning to receive your word, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and it has relevance in our lives today, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would, uh, like Jonathan Edwards prayed, you would stamp eternity on our eyeballs. God, I pray that for us this morning. We would have a fresh realization that you, of just what's ahead, of eternity and what you have for us, God. Give us fresh perspective. And um, just thank you, Jesus. Speak today. In Christ's name, amen. amen. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read um, 1 Corinthians 1, or 15, 1 through 8. And then we're going to skip and go 12 through 23. And I'm reading from the ESV. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. On to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. It's the word of the Lord. There is so much here. I'm going to be honest. This is like, wow, this is so, there's so much here. Um, this passage addresses some of our greatest needs, while at the same time, it gives us our greatest hope. And I'll say that again because I think it's important. This passage addresses some of our greatest needs, while at the same time, it gives us our greatest hope. Today we want to talk about, in the broadest sense, the gospel. And as gospel people, we are those who must be looking ahead. The renowned Swiss theologian and pastor Karl Barth called chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians the key to the entire letter. But as a letter, we're undeniably jumping in to an already moving stream. So let's get some context that will help us understand the driving point of the passage. So 1 Corinthians is a letter from Paul to the people of God in Corinth, the first Christians there. As a letter, it's important to remember that it is meant to be read as a whole. So although we're not doing that this morning, just keep that in mind. Corinth was an influential city about 45 miles west of Athens, a very cultured city, which Paul first visited on his second missionary journey recorded in Acts 18. We're told Paul stayed a year and a half there, teaching the word of God to the people. So Paul knew this church. Paul's occasion for writing was in response to very practical questions posed in a letter from the Corinthians. And one need not go very far in the response letter from Paul back to the Corinthians, what we have, to realize the church had serious issues. Remember in chapter 1, Paul addresses divisions in the church. He says, some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Peter. Christians were taking other Christians to court. Sexual immorality was being accepted, incest. The Lord's Supper was being in a, done, in, in a way that was not edifying. And certain spiritual gifts were being looked down on over and against others. And there was even disorder in worship. A lot of issues where the Corinthians weren't acting in keeping with the gospel. So when we get to our chapter, chapter 15, which is um, admittedly uh, doctrinally heavy and full of dogma, it's not merely that. It is that. It is that. Um, But it's not merely that. It's also life. I think it holds life for us. Paul's talking about the gospel and defending the resurrection. This holds transformative power. 
Paul wants to remind the people of God in Corinth of who they are and where they're headed in Christ. We might say, they're telos, their end. That word means their purpose, the goal, the goal, where they're headed. So, let's start in 15.1. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. Here, the idea of reminding carries with it both declaration and reiteration. This is central. After all the practical questions, I think Paul is saying, now, Corinthians, this is the most practical of all. It's not new, but that's why you need reminded of it. Because we have short memories. We forget so quickly. So Paul's saying, remember. And what, do, what does Paul have in mind when he uses the term, the gospel? I think that's an important question. This good news, what it literally means, whatever it is, it's what Paul preached for a year and a half that he was in Corinth. He says... It's what y'all received, it's what you dwell in, and it's how you are being saved, as the ESV translates it. I think the NIV says are saved. But I think we see clearly the reality of salvation here. The form of the, the word for saved there can legitimately be translated, either the NIV way or the ESV way. Gordon Fee and David Garland see a progression in this verse that I think is crucial Let's look. Paul says, you all received this in the past. It's where you're standing in the present. And it's where you're headed. It's present to future reality. In other words, there's more salvation up ahead. This salvation reality is really a prelude and an an outline for the rest of the chapter that we're going to talk about. Chapter 15. Let's look in verse 3. Paul says, I delivered you to you, church, what's of first importance. What was really important then is still the most important thing. I didn't make it up. You received it. And you remember how Paul received it. Encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. On his way to exterminate the church. And you remember our question of what Paul meant when he used the word gospel? He tells us now that Christ, the anointed one, died for our sins, was buried and raised on the third day. And all of this, all of this was just how the scriptures had anticipated it. And be reminded that for Paul, the scriptures was the Old Testament was the law and the prophets. And so I I imagine that Paul had in mind here, he clearly had in mind particular uh, verses of the Old Old Testament. So think of Psalm 16, uh, Isaiah 53, all these things that are looking forward. And here, particularly claiming that Christ solves the problem of our sin and separation from God, I think Genesis 3, Christ is the second Adam. Christ was sacrificed. Christ was our Passover lamb. All of the Old Testament looking forward to Christ. Verse 6. And he appeared 
Just as the Old Testament testifies to Christ's death and burial and resurrection, so Paul here is testifying. Paul goes on to list a bunch of people that witnessed the risen Christ. And he says he wasn't a ghost. He actually, he, he had a body. In fact, the apostle goes out of his way to give evidence for Jesus' bodily appearing. Paul, t- Paul goes to great lengths to make this point. Paul is responding to people who denied the bodily resurrection. As we will see, it's not that skeptics of the resurrection of the dead did not believe in post-mortem existence. They most certainly did. And I think it's, it's actually fascinating how, how much this resembles beliefs today that we deal with. If we go out and we ask people, if we ask people in Beverly um, about life after death, what do you think people would say? Um, we might concede that you know, some people might say this is all there is. And, uh, and there's nothing after death. The lights go out. But I think most would have a vague idea of heaven. Maybe where good people go. Here people sit on clouds and play harps. Whatever. I don't know. Um, or maybe, worse yet, you have church 24-7. That would actually, yeah. I think that would be worse. <laughs> where we're just spirit. We're in some kind of dream world. So what was in contention was not the, no, the notion of bo- the bodily, I'm sorry, what was in contention was the notion of the bodily resurrection, though. So, P- so Paul says, first to Peter, then to the apostles, then to more than 500 at one time. Do you know how many people have, uh, have walked on the moon? Twelve. Okay, I'll give you the answer. Twelve. Twelve people have walked on the moon, and out of those twelve... Uh, eight are still alive. Now, I don't bring that up to encourage conspiracy theories or whatever, but rather to impress upon us that Paul is saying all these people saw him, and most of them are still alive. That's what he's telling the Corinthians. So you could go ask them about it. Although some have fallen asleep, indeed. Um, the term here for falling asleep, Paul uses three times in, uh, in our text. Here in verse 6, in verse uh, 18, and in verse 20. And, um, which, which means it's something we should pay attention to. Do you remember in John 11, uh, when Jesus hears of his friend Lazarus' death, um, Remember, he hears of his sickness, and he stays where he's at two days longer. And when he finally, and when he tells his disciples, um, we need to go uh, and, and see Lazarus. He's, he's died. Um, uh, he says that, but he actually doesn't use the word for died. He actually uses this same word, and it's translated that way. He's fallen asleep. And you remember the disciples being confused, because they thought Jesus was actually talking about Physical sleep, natural sleep. Because that's, that's what the word actually means. You see, falling asleep is not just a nice, cute way to say death, but it carries with it expectation. It is clear that falling asleep here refers 
particularly to the body. And if you remember, in the case of Lazarus, the expectation of the bodily resurrection turns into certainty. The certainty of the resurrection comes. Jesus, the resurrection, comes. And he says, Lazarus, come out. So we have a problem. And um, we have a problem that has plagued humanity since Adam. And it's that we all die. Um, there's an end. It's all over. And I know most, like a good portion of us are um, younger in this congregation. Um, but I think that's an important perspective to have. Some live 100 years, some live 60 years, some live one month, some never make it out of their mother's womb. Whether you're rich or you're poor, you live in America or Indonesia or Peru, whether you're famous or seemingly insignificant, we die. And see, all the religions of the world try to solve this problem. Some say we're reincarnated. Some say heaven is pure sensuality. Muslims call it paradise. Homer and the Greeks called it Elysium. But all say something about the afterlife. But only Christianity really solves the problem. And what solves the problem is that God conquered death. See, Paul is being ridiculously logical here. See, we can't have life until death is defeated And the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. That which we had no power to do, God did by sending his son. Christ was raised on the third day. Again, that which we had no power to do, God did. And part of the glorious good news is that God will raise us up on the last day. And we will get new resurrected bodies. In other words, our resurrection might look a lot like Christ. Carl Henry, the 20th century evangelical theologian, stated, Jesus' resurrection in history's mid-course gave everyone a public preview of the end time. Jesus' resurrection in history's mid-course gave everyone a public preview of the end time. God raised Christ up first, and he will raise us up too. You know, and there are many paradoxes of the Christian faith. I think one of the biggest, and um, one that I have often uh, struggled with, actually, is the tension between the already and the not yet. Christ has been raised, and we have already been raised when we are in Christ. That is a reality. And yet we are called to eagerly wait for that final day when history is realized. So we have the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. And yet we're told that he's a deposit, that there's more to come. he's, he's, He's proof of more to come. I'm blown away by that. I think one of the most compelling defenses and apologies of the Christian faith is that it does justice to the mysteries of life. 
I think we need to do justice to the mysteries of life. So at the harbor, part of the call, or part of our call is to be a haven for the broken. But that can only happen when we do justice to the gospel. And that includes the mystery. The mystery. There's a lot we don't know. So we know there's going to be a resurrection. Um, and yet scripture also tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So how does that all work out in our minds? I, I, I think, well, um, we, we know those, those are both realities. And um, different people think about them in a different way. And there are you know, different solutions um, to that. Um, but I mean, I, I think one way that I've thought about it is that, you know, when, when we die, that uh, we're asleep. That scripture tells us. We're asleep. And the next thing we know is the corporate resurrection. And for me, thinking about that, that brings, that brings it really close. That reality that the, that the I mean, that, I, just thinking about that, that it's, it's soon, you know? It's really soon. So no wonder that the bodily resurrection, both Jesus's and ours, is of supreme importance to Paul. In verse 13, look at verse 13. Paul begins a hypothetical. He says, if there's no resurrection, then if there's no resurrection of dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then essentially what he's saying is, um, maybe Eugene Peterson's translation would say, what are we doing here? You know, like what I'm doing, whatever I'm doing, Paul's saying, this preaching thing, it's pointless. And your faith, that's, that's really pointless. After all, faith by definition, by definition, we're told in Hebrews 11, looks ahead. Looks ahead. He says, even worse, we're even, we're even telling lies about God. Paul says, look, I'm a Jew. And if this thing isn't true, I'm the biggest heretic on the planet. I've left God's people, essentially. Telling lies about God. See, our sin problem has not been fixed then. We're still in our sins. And if Jesus' body wasn't raised, what we're doing now is pointless. And we have no hope for the future. Those who have fallen asleep, quote unquote, uh, they've actually just died. And there's no hope because they were still in their sins. And finally, verse 19. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Isn't this fascinating? Paul is saying that our true hope, it's actually not just right here, but it's up ahead. This reality should change the way we live. I mean, I really believe that. It should change the way we live today. Look in 15.20. Paul says, but, 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 but Christ has been raised from the dead. 
He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. It's God's promise to us, and the rest of the harvest is coming. By equating Jesus to the first fruits here, Paul is actually, he's making an Old Testament allusion. Um, in Leviticus 23, the people of Israel offered a sheaf or a bundle of the first fruits, their first fruits of their field. After all, they were an agricultural society before Yahweh. So we're told, Yahweh says, that you may be accepted in Leviticus 23.11. So it is that Christ has gone before us. The only reason why we will be raised is because Christ has been raised. Do we see Paul's logic? If this hasn't happened, then what we're doing is just making us feel good in this life. And we do a lot of things to make us feel good in this life. Even church can be that. The gospel, that which Paul preached at the beginning to the Corinthians, is a reality. Historical fact and our future if we're in Christ. And in verse 23, we're told each in his own order. Just as the first fruits are brought in first, so Christ was raised first. Preeminently. So those in Christ will be raised later. So this begs the question then, um, how does looking forward change the way we live in the present? I mean, does it really? Um, I think it does. And there's a Christian virtue here that I think is important for us to hear. Where our hope is, where our hope is placed, that is what we live for. See, if you put your hope in your work, you're going to live for your work. If you put your hope in your marriage, you're going to live for your marriage. If you put your hope in seminary, you're going to live for seminary. Plain and simple. And a scary reality for me is that I can be a follower of Christ and not live any differently than anybody else. I wake up the same, go to school the same, work the same, have a family the same, and nothing is different about me. I can go to church and even to seminary and not have my eyes lifted to see the reality before me. Eternity. That is what we should be living for. If our hope is just here, we are to be pitied more than anyone. But thank God, the maker of heaven and earth, that we are citizens of his new creation if we are in Christ. We are citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. We are made new creations to reside there. As we're taught elsewhere in scripture as well, we will have new bodies for this new heaven, for these new heavens and new earth. So in 1 Corinthians 15, we're being told who we are and where we're headed. Our tell us. So we know the end. And if we're in Christ, we have been raised with him. And you know why that is truth? Because God's promises are as good as God's fulfillment. The already and the not yet, they they meet. And there's a little distinction here I'd like to make. 
Contrary to popular belief, the already and the not yet are not in conflict, as I've often felt them to be. Now, they are, I think they are in tension. I mean, there's, there, there's a reality there that we must, we must get right. But I want us also to think about the enormity of God, the eternality of God. See, this life is just a taste. Just a taste. It's a prelude. The preface. I mean, really. Think about eternity. When we grasp the reality of the resurrection and eternity, how can that not change the way we live? Again, I realize this is kind of a hard task, and it's something... Um, you know, our church is relatively young, and I realize that, honestly, for me, the resurrection doesn't sound all that appealing sometimes. I like right now better. There are, God willing, people here who have entire lives ahead of them if Christ doesn't come first. But I think what we need, and I really believe this moving forward and even, even thinking about uh, going into the fall, as a church body, that we need perspective. We need perspective. What we need is wisdom and perspective. That's what Paul's telling the, first, the, to, telling the Corinthians. This is the gospel. This is your hope. This is your future. And looking ahead will change the way we live today. It'll give us wisdom. It'll give us discernment. It will prioritize everything about our lives, our families, our church. It will change what we say, how we spend our time, what movies we watch, what books we read. It will change how we think, and it will even change our desires. So I studied history in undergrad, and uh, one of the greatest compliments you can give, I think, in, to, to someone um, in the past is to say, that they were a man or a woman ahead of their time. Think about it. Lincoln, Churchill, Wilberforce. They all saw, they all saw where they were. They had a real understanding of where they were. But they also saw what history was bringing them. And I think how much more as Christians should we be men and women who see clearly where we're at? We live surrounded by avoiders of death. We don't like to think about it. And, but let me tell you, what people need is not chiefly life improvement stuff, although that's certainly incorporated in the gospel. That's part of the gospel. But what people need to know is where this thing is headed. <laughs> where this thing is headed. And people need expectation. We were made for it. People need God. We were made for him. And so this is not just feel-good stuff, but it's reality. And I really believe that it's something that a vacation at Lake George can't compare to. It's God himself. The gospel. And, um, yeah, so, so church... What I, was, what I would exhort us to today is to have our eyes fixed ahead.
Paul elsewhere says that our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's what we received, it's what we stand in, and it's how we're being saved. And at his coming, we're told in verse 23, we will be made alive. More alive than right now. I think there's, um, God's doing a lot of things in our church body. Um, but I think one of the things is that he is enlarging our thinking about him. Um, last week, we, we, uh, we heard a sermon on, the, uh, on God's sovereignty. And I think that this is, this is crucial, that we think rightly about God. It, it really will change our lives. You cannot think big enough. You can think wrong about God, for sure. I want to be clear. You can think wrong. But we cannot think big enough. We can never have our vision. Um, if, you, if, you, if you have your vision on eternity, um, I really do believe that it will order everything in your life and you will gain a godly perspective. You will gain a godly perspective. You will gain wisdom. And I really think that we need that. We need that um, here today. And we need that in our church body. And um, yeah, so that is what um, God has been teaching me. But I don't think it's just for me. I think it's for us. And I think it's the reality of 1 Corinthians 15. That, uh, that we're, that we're pe- to be people of the gospel where we're at. But we're also to be looking ahead. And have a perspective of God. And to have our minds renewed. Be thinking correctly about God. And to be changed. So. Yeah. Amen. 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 Don't you love how this brother thinks and processes? Praise the Lord. Hey, yeah, worship band, come on up. I'm going to invite you all to stand at this point. And um, we're kind of training as a church that um, as we wrap, as we end our service, we uh, are, are doing one song. And so um, I just, I'm thinking there's two main ways to respond. If you're here today and you've never decided to follow Jesus, then hey, the best thing you can do today is ask, ask Jesus to come in your heart and for you to follow him with all, all that you have. Just receive his forgiveness. If that's you, then talk to someone who brought you. Talk to Pastor John, myself, or Jude. Um, they'd love to uh, explain to you how, what it looks like to follow Jesus. The second thing is, if, um, as I, when I was kicking around this um, message with uh, Jude earlier this week, the conviction that came on me was, man, Lord, I need a reframe, right? I'm, I'm too much living for today and not living for eternity. If that's you, then we're going to have our, our prayer folks up here, and they just want to pray for you. But don't delay, because we're just doing one song, and then we'll be dismissed. As you're dismissed... Believe it or not, our summer of ease is over and that we need to start uh, um, packing up the chairs again. So today, um, t- Tim Noiner will just direct us, but if you could help us by putting chairs, not don't just stack them on the floor, stack them on those carts that are in the back and Tim will help facilitate that us. Amen? Awesome. Lord, thank you for today. We love you and thank you that we are made to live for eternity. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Jesus Christ raised from the dead in bodily form. And our bodies too will be transformed one day, very soon, soon, 
Soon, soon, soon. Lord, come on your church with power today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys, don't delay. Come and get prayer. Bless you.